Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Good morning, Faisal. I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Our uh, companion, Mr. Mike Townsend, is having some internet difficulties, so he won't be joining us today. But I thought, I thought I'd get the show rolling by asking you that we've been doing this show for now about a year and a half almost. We're up to our 72nd episode. And wow. just sort of take back um, maybe a little time to reflect on all what's been happening in the payments world, especially, you know, how the competition has increased. There are more players in the space, um, not just domestically within the U.S., but internationally as well, and how, you know, generally get your view on it so my first question to you would be you know how crowded is the space wow faisal what a what a long journey uh yes uh, space is getting more and more crowded you know when you think back in our first early shows it was before apple pay was around before there was a samsung samsung pay and we had uh, really just an exuberance of startups and all sorts of disruption signals that were being placed into the market. And uh, it moves so quickly. Look where we are today. I mean, we have an independent PayPal. If you were to judge by the stock, it's doing exceedingly well. I think far better than most people would have imagined uh, as a standalone entity. I think back when we first started doing the show, we probably... We're, we're anticipating this, uh, but it was before David Marcus left the company. Mm, which was a big things. surprise back then. A big shock for a lot of people. And then another shock, he was going to PayPal to run Messenger. And everybody yeah. goes, oh, he's giving up on payments. But Faisal knew more, right? So uh, they are head forth into payments. And I think Facebook is something that is a, a dramatic transformative. So let's look back. Let's We, got, we have eBay uh, as an independent um uh, spin off of eBay, PayPal is now something that is concerning. I think anybody in the, the fintech sector, primarily because they are really a wild card. In some ways, they are operating like a startup. In some ways, they're a traditional 13 odd year old company. Don't forget the acquisition uh, that they just did. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now they're looking into really extending with Zoom and, you know, I've had so many conversations with analysts trying to really understand how do I price what what PayPal is into the future. And I said, listen, how would you price uh, Zoom and um, and all of the other individual things? You know, how would you look at pricing these if they were publicly uh, traded? And, you know, it's really a portfolio of companies. I mean, PayPal is really one small part of it. You have Braintree and you have Venmo. So Braintree, which is a significant competitor to Stripe, mm-hmm. uh, you have Venmo, which is the dominant player in person-to-person payments in the U.S. And uh, you have Zoom, which I think is a tremendous asset uh, for cross-border. You know, that PayPal is, a is almost, phenomenal like a ba- almost like a bank. 
And, you know, you had <laughs> your regular bank, and then the bank decides it wants to get into co- loans, so it goes and buys a company out, so it now has a loans division. It then goes by as another company out, now it has a retail banking division. Then it goes for commercial banking and investment banking and so forth. That's how I view PayPal. You know, all these acquisitions are essentially divisions, and they're complementing the entire, you know, the portrait that they're trying to, uh, I guess, paint or show in a couple of years. Absolutely. And I think all of them uh, independently, if they were IPOs, would be trading at significantly high valuable uh, value multiples. You know, these are companies that really are in the forefront of what's going on in the transformative uh, economies within, you know, payments, within app economies, within, you know, um, all the different changes that we're seeing. So the biggest issue I see is the the report cards on the various players are constantly changing. You have Facebook who obviously moved into person-to-person payments with Messenger, but I believe they're going to be moving on to retail payments and uh, eat, you know, electronic commerce payments and uh, even some other types of payments that um, don't really want to talk about at this point, but I think uh, interesting uh, adjuncts to what they're planning on doing. So at the end of this sort of long journey that Facebook is on, they are going to look very similar to a PayPal. You know, they're going to look very similar to a Square. Uh, And it's going to be interesting as we move along. But that transformation already started. And again, going back to our early shows, it wasn't even there. And if you were to say Facebook would be in payments, they just think you're a payment nerd thinking everybody's going to be in payments. Mm. And of course, we have Apple. I mean, you know, that's the the big uh, the big uh, enchilada here. In the early shows, it was considered brain damage to think Apple would actually get involved with NFC and payments, and mm-hmm. that NFC is somehow you know never yeah. going to yeah it's never going to be anything. And look where it is now. It's the fastest growing protocol. It's the fastest growing protocol in the world. And it's amazing. There's no other protocol moving faster you know, at this I, I, point. Something that just blew me away. I was reading uh, Finextra and, you know, there was an article saying uh, when we talk about PayPal, BlackBerry, remember them? Uh, BlackBerry, <laughs> BlackBerry partners with PayPal for BBM P2P payments. And this is not happening somewhere in, uh, you know, a remote part of the world. This is happening in Canada. So, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good alliance, I would say. BBM and you know, PayPal partnering up and so forth. So I guess PayPal is not leaving any corner unturned. It, it, it is going after each and every facet of the payment system. You know, and a lot of people in the United States might take sort of an arrogant view of this. They might wind up looking at it and saying, oh, my gosh, two antiquated uh, old players getting together. Who cares? Well, in reality, you know, when you become U.S.-centric, you don't realize how large this could be for a large sector of the population. It is uh, not that BlackBerry is exploding in growth, but there is a a user base that is substantial Mm. and is a prime user base for any small or medium-sized company. Now, is this going to make or break PayPal? No, but it is a momentum. It is a big momentum. And again, this is not to say I'm pro-PayPal, it's going to change the world and end all other forms of payment uh, innovation, what I am saying is that the old playbook, and the old playbook right now is 2014 or early 2015 in payments, has been upended. And when we look at uh, what everybody's doing, you know, and how everybody's moving forth, it is going to change dramatically in the next 10 to 15 months. Uh, And I don't think anybody's got a stronghold. What, what's your view? What's your view of of, of uh, the BlackBerry uh, PayPal scenario from your well, perspective? It, it, it's very difficult for me to say it. You know, in hindsight, it'll be, it'll be very easy to look at an article and say, "Well, yeah, I knew that was going to happen." But sure. right now, I, I think BlackBerry is trying to see. You know, can I hold on to players? Can I hold on to my consumers, and have them retain on BlackBerry, provided? I provide them the apps that they would otherwise be using on, let's say, an iPhone or an Android phone. And uh, I, I guess this would be uh, the thing. BBM is used a lot. You know, it's secure. Uh, it's used a lot in the corporate communication world. So I think, you know, implementing PayPal into it may I could just be a fluff. I don't know. Uh, really hard to tell. 
most of the people that I knew who were diehard BlackBerry fans and the last one just sort of migrated not too long ago, maybe about two weeks ago. So uh, I don't know if BlackBerry will still be able to keep it. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to be a huge BBM user. Not anymore. Uh, the messaging service just died after I moved out of BlackBerry, even though yeah. I had the option of getting one on my iPhone and so forth. But it's not there anymore. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think uh, PayPal is being generous to them. And I think BlackBerry yes. is being very uh, desperate just to hold on to their users. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny. The the thing I always talk to with clients and anybody who's willing to want to talk payments is, you know, you look at how the rate of change is so accelerated. And if you're in any existing uh, payments business, and that means you're a year or two old even, you know, when you start looking at the innovation, it's bubbling up. I mean, I'm in a fortunate position. I get to see companies that are very young and vibrant. This last week, I had um, uh, a whole team uh, from a startup, uh, stealth startup. I can't go into too many details about it because they actually want to remain stealthy. Uh, their job, their their sole job in, in their and the companies that they're targeting. I mean, they, they literally, they don't call it disruption. They actually see themselves more like looting pirates. And uh, this particular startup, it's uh, almost uh, 17 individuals now. So I had 17 individuals come out and, uh, you know, there's one that's deciding he's leaving um, a well-known payment company that might be IPOing soon. And he stood in and he wanted to hear what I had to say. And they, they blew me away. They actually flew out to my local airstrip, hmm. which isn't a, it's not a dirty airstrip, but it's, you know, it has jet aircraft landing there. And uh, they said, you know, I want to come out. I've met him three times now. And we just wanted to have a brainstorming session. And one of their claims to fame, they have, you know, about 1,500 customers, primarily uh, primarily online, but they're going after retail customers too. And their claim to fame is they are over uh, 200 APIs that they've designed. So one of their targets is to go after Stripe merchants, uh, Braintree merchants, Square merchants, uh, PayPal merchants, etc. And what they do is they, they pick plum merchants. They pick merchants that they know are doing exceedingly well. They look at what the weak spots are. What what are they building? Uh, you know, what is this merchant uh, building for their uh, customers? And where are they going to be in a couple of weeks, months, or years? Build the API for that. Then go and attack at every uh, facet to get access to that business. And they are tenacious in doing it. And secure the business. Now, they've done it with uh, just about... 30 businesses now and I actually was so motivated by what they did I sat and did a live call I called uh, up uh, it was not completely random it was one out of 20 particular merchants and I just made the call myself and we converted um, I don't want to say whose merchant it was uh, doing a, uh, about $2 million a, a month in credit card processing online and we converted them over to this new platform and it took uh, a conversation about three about three APIs mm-hmm. and a savings of about 13, 18 uh, percent, you know, based upon how you want to call it. And the, the frightening thing within the industry, it's called attrition. And the frightening thing about payments is attrition from merchants are much, ho- much higher than anybody could imagine. There is very little stickiness. If you win by technology, you lose by technology. If you win by price, you lose by price. If you're trying to win on both. I thought the other way around. I thought maybe, you know, you find a good processor, you stick with them. Because changing processors means changing systems and integration and all that stuff. Yeah, but imagine if you have a a, a group of uh, marauding pirates who are into looting plum customers who make it so darn easy for you to migrate that they literally migrate it for you. They have a one-button press. For example, uh, the top five platforms, Hmm. let's say Stripe. Braintree, Authorize.net, you can press one button and the script will go in and move everything over and it's done. There, You don't even need a programmer. But because they're so hands-on in the way they're handling their customers, they built their sales teams 
and engineering teams at exactly the same moment. And it gave both teams equal power within a company, which is unheard of in startup world, especially a Bay Area startup was where they're from. Uh, and they happen to love the fact that this is the big secret weapon. It's like, you know, um, what the head of sales and head engineering said, we don't exist without each other. We are, you know, the brain and the heart, you know, and um, uh, it, it's a really heartwarming thing to me because it's something I've been advocating for decades. And it, the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction. When you talk to payment companies, startups, some of the companies I mentioned, they look at you, they are intelligent enough to cognize it, but it's always something they're going to do in the future. And the thing is, if you got to do it in the future, you're already that far behind. And I'm not saying you're doomed for failure. You're just doomed not to rise as high in the stratosphere because but, you, you know, didn't build it. The proof it. is in the pudding. I mean, they've yet to sell their wares. I mean, until you don't do that and they've sustained themselves for a year or two, it's really difficult to tell. There's so many companies, you know, you and I come across that have oh my God. Uh, yes. seemingly amazing pitch decks, amazing amazing demos. Some, some of them even have an MVP out there. Uh, that works really good. But when it comes to, you know, what's your uh, traction going to be like? Where are you going to get clients? How are you going to do that? The numbers sometimes are just, you know, preposterous. I've had clients tell me, you know, you know, we, we, we will be onboarding at the rate of a million a month uh, yeah, world I, over. I say, yeah, really go try it. You know, it's easier <laughs> said than done. A million a month. Have you even done the, rever- have you done the reverse math of, it, of what it takes to onboard a million customers a month? It's, um, it's insane. It's yeah. insane. And you know what a lot of people do is they use social media growth statistics for other sorts of industries. And that's an amazing amount of bull. You know, I think, unfortunately, the startup culture, primarily in the Bay Area, is built around these enormous numbers that yeah, social media has. Because, you know, social and, media, I, you know, you, I have a hard time clicking or subscribing to a small app service using social media. I do it all the time, but because I want to test it out. But, you know, sure. uh, me seeing some Twitter feed and someone saying, hey, got to check this payment system out and just go for it, not going to happen. Exactly, exactly. So we got that going on. And, and it's it's interesting because the average age of this company, uh, there's two guys, two, two, one gal, one guy that's uh, actually quite a bit older. But the average age is 23 years old. And these are people, uh, two came from Stanford. Uh, they dropped out. So you got your classic Stanford dropout scenario. And you've got and your classic millennials. Exactly. And, and they look at Braintree and Stripe as ancient. This is so amazingly funny. And they look at them as ancient and artifact. And I'm like, you guys are making me laugh because if you're to talk to the mainstream, they're the, they're the marauders. They're the upenders. So I guess the theme here is you're only as new and as effective as the last generation. You know, just the one just behind you. They see the world through different glasses. And it's I got to tell you the amazing amount of energy. Just I spent a whole day with them, you know, and I, I normally don't, you know, I love sales. I, I normally don't do these live demos because it s- seems like a bad movie script. You know, I've got them on. I didn't have them on a speakerphone, but they could hear it uh, with uh, the, the way I, I had it set up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I went through the entire simple sales process and, it, you know, sales process for selling, you know, a company is doing a million, two million dollars a month online is nothing what you would imagine. It's a conversation. It's a conversation about goals and ambition. And if you have a, if you have a script, if you have a pitch book, if you have, uh, you know, your classic selling, uh, uh, you know, uh, strategy, uh, you're going to get hung up on in 30 seconds. I, uh, I engaged in a conversation. That conversation had uh, a number of turning points. Uh, the first turning point was uh, the first three minutes. First three minutes, I identified three weaknesses I knew that a company had in her payment strategy with their current uh, processing relationship. Didn't even mention price, but price was a sensitivity. It always is. And, of course, you identified the, the resistance. Resistance to change is a hassle factor. If you eliminate the hassle factor, there is zero resistance of tra- change if there's a high trust factor. So while you're eliminating the hassle factor, you have to increase the trust factor. And the trust factor is um, redundancy, fault tolerance, and a fallback, an instant fallback kill switch. The beauty of what these guys and gals put together is it has an instant kill switch. 
you can go out and, and they have A B uh, splits, A B C mm-hmm. splits, so you can continue to go on with your existing relationship. But here, check out what we're doing over in A B and C or on B and C, and then there's a kill switch in case you know one moment you just decide it sucks. Mm-hmm. With the kind of volume that they have, they can press a button and nobody knows the better. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is. What, what I am anticipating, and this is not business to consumer sales. This is pure business to business sales. So the things I'm saying today don't really apply to business to consumer. They'd be quite annoying, uh, actually. But in business to business, the whole selling environment is radically different. And the things that were becoming very popular, the platforms and the selling styles becoming very popular over the last two years, already antiquated with the systems that companies like this are developing. In fact, I'll leave it on this with this particular group. Not only are they closing the gap on APIs, they are planning to have over a thousand APIs before the end of next year. Now, that will make people laugh. They're saying... No, I, that, I, I actually not, don't think because I think um, uh, everyone knows that APIs are very essential to the fintech world. In fact, one of the top five, uh, uh, I, I forgot which survey, but when the survey said that of the top five fintech technologies that you know are prevalent right now are banking APIs. So banks, Absolutely. Are, you know, banks are looking at you know all these challenger banks that are coming up, and you know there's a there's a challenger bank list. I've put up on my blog. I'll, I'll share the link in the podcast. Oh, I'd love to see that. Um, uh, you know, if you look at Atom Bank in the UK, which is coming out, uh, launching their product later this year, they've actually used video game technology to yes. uh, to basically coerce the 18 to 35-year-olds and, you know, use their apps. But banks have realized they're no way positioned to uh, challenge and, you know, set up their own internal incubations and go after these companies. So the next best thing they can do and hope that they will make some revenues by opening their API. So I think banks have become very cognizant of that. And again, um, you know, hooray to UK, because UK has taken the lead. They're actually coming up with a national policy on how they can, you know, open APIs for all the banks. This is actually an amazing initiative. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's um, it's really very forward thinking. You know, the bottom line is, and, and what I've learned with this company and a few others, is that the rate of change is accelerating so quickly that it you are almost becoming a um, a legacy company if you're not constantly pulling in these new ideas. And like I was saying, uh, to, to cap off with this other company, not only did they do this amazing stuff in payments, and they have a very, you know, uh, in- incredible culture. I mean, this idea, it's very much like what Steve Jobs did when they created the Mac. They've they've energized these individuals to, to become pirates, you know, and they're not pirates at stealing anything, but in some ways they are. They're, they're not, they're not less, you know, at this stage, juncture and they can do this but at this juncture they're literally going after plum accounts their business plan is we don't really need vc funding and they got a little angel funding uh because we're literally just going to take these plum accounts we know exactly what they're going to uh generate in revenues and we can use those revenues to grow the company magically and they are already doing that but the other thing they built was this amazingly new uh concept on a selling platform and this selling platform, I think in and of itself, will be a product at some future date. It's one of the things I left them with. I said, listen, you really need to look at forking the company and just have a team on this platform because I could see a lot of products being sold on it. So we got that going on. So I, I think mean, that's Talking about plum, that's I mean, future. forget about customers. Look at the vendor side. I mean, you know, there's a lot of acquisition oh going on on the vendor side. Uh, recently, uh FIS just decided to buy SunGuard for a nine point one that's billion, amazing billion dollar deal. That that's huge. You know, it was off the radar screen on a lot of people. What what, what do you feel about this, Faisal? I what mean, do you think is, it's this is really like mean? creating the 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 oracle for financial services? In fact, they have yeah. now become the oracle for financial services. Uh, you know, yeah. SunGuard is huge. FIS is even larger, and the two powerhouses coming together. 55,000 employees, 100 countries where they do business. That's unbelievable, you know? So I... I, And just imagine, I was just saying, just imagine putting a a, a, a dynamic leader and environment and and to, you know, affect change within that company. I mean, 
I tell you, if they cut that loose, it's something to really, really be considering, you know? Well, I think uh, it, it, it wouldn't be far-fetched for these companies now to go on an acquisition spree of all the new fintech companies coming up. Look at BBVA, uh, which has been saying all along that, you know, the blockchain is it, blockchain is it. It's because, You know, they actually have a quote from, I think, one of the CEOs saying, you know, blockchain is poised to become the bank's banking biggest disruptor. And if we are not in it, we are going to lose out, you know. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you, you know, the... the the, the entire payment space is so exciting right now, but it also makes me think, out of every 10 companies, how many will just fail, just, just fail miserably? Oh, exactly. You know, it, and it's funny, when we look back probably uh, a year from now, we're going to see some of the companies we're talking about, you know, over the next couple of shows and maybe over the last year, you know, they're going to be merged, acquired, or out of business. I mean, some of their intellectual capital is going to be great, you know, but the payments, you know, the payment startup space is one of the things that I think is most dramatically going to change. And not just for startups, uh, Brian. I mean, you're, you're, you know about, uh, you know, what's that, uh, currency? Yes, so, uh, MCX, currency, yes. So Interesting. Know, what's your view what's on going that? on there? Yeah, what's going on there? Well, I got to tell you, Apple from Pay a, just has a ninety-eight percent approval rating on satisfaction for all payments made. Ninety-eight percent, the highest the industry yeah. has ever seen. You know, and, and and people are yawning at Apple Pay because they are just, you know, a lot of people in the tech space. Uh, they're looking at Apple Pay and saying, "Gosh, it's not growing as much." They're not even looking at the proper uh, matrix. If you look at the deployment of uh, payment card terminals in the United States, and this is before any of the startups, there's no startups uh, really effectively putting out NFC devices yet. I mean, Square announced one, but they're slowly dribbling it out. PayPal doesn't, you know, they're not really a startup, but they don't really have a an adequate NFC system in the, in the marketplace. And, you know, everybody yet, else yet. in the top 10. Yeah, yeah. This is a yet thing. But subtracting I mean, them from the equation. Go by, uh, Samsung, you know? Oh, yeah. It's I mean, huge. just think about that. Samsung is not it's, doing very well financially. If PayPal oh gets God. access to Samsung, you just imagine what will happen. You can, they can create another uh, type of Apple competitor. Absolutely. So if you take a step back and you look at, well, who's deploying NFC? Well, strangely enough, it's Verifone. Uh, Verifone is exploding. In fact, there's so many Verifone terminals being deployed. They're out of stock for NFC and EMV. They're out of stock most of the time. So... This is a company that was going to be disrupted. This is a company that was going to be shut down. Everybody's going to be using iPads. Well, it didn't happen. Yeah, but that's I, a U.S. perspective, though, right? Well, and it, it, well, from a world perspective, Ingenico and Verifone are still doing exceedingly well. No, I mean, well. deploying NFC in the U.S. Uh, from that perspective. NFC oh, yeah. is, 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 is all the rage everywhere else. That's right. I mean, again, I'm doing the U.S. centric thing because most of the, I, I tell you, most of the people in the U.S. only think the U.S. is leading. So it's a, especially in, in, in financial. Well, it's a huge market, uh, no doubt. Of course, but you know, the innovation isn't necessarily coming here. NFC was, you know, Japan for many, many, uh, almost a decade, and doing ex- exceedingly well with Japan, ticket- Singapore, Hong Kong, London, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, yeah, and when, when the Oyster card finally got over there, it made a lot of sense. But what I'm saying is the growth level of the deployments of NFC devices in the United States is breaking all records. My last percentage is over 3,900%. I, I, I've started to stop tracking it because the growth is getting so high. It's, it's getting ridiculous. So what this means is that Apple Pay is reaching the level of ubiquitousness. And that this brings us back to currency and MCX. The original idea of MCX came out of frustration. And it, you'll laugh at how this started. The, the individuals that were involved in forming MCX were basically the IT departments of two major uh, members. And they were looking around at and startups. Walmart? Uh, Walmart and it was another company. I, you know, they don't really like to talk about the inception story, but we can definitely say Walmart. They went around to all the startups, uh, and Square was one of them. And they looked for phone numbers. They couldn't call anybody up because there was no phone numbers on the website. They mm-hmm. called finally after they found a number, and they said, "Hey, we want a partner. We want to get involved in this iPad payment stuff." You know, a junior. Somebody from somewhere answers the phone and says, well, take a take a ticket, stand in line kind of attitude. Mm. And, and that arrogance killed a lot of early potential um, 
partnerships that these startups could have had. And it wasn't this square. I'm not just beating them up. I'm any startup that doesn't have a phone number in their sure. website. Yeah. Learn, learn. And if you can't answer the phone, don't put the startup together. I mean, period. End of story. If you're in business to business, if you can't answer the phone, you're doing something wrong. Anyway, getting back to this, they were frustrated. They reached out to all these innovators. They wanted to try to partnership. Nobody was talking to them. So they said, you know something? Kind of sick of this. Innovation is happening. We're going to do it ourselves. And I was all I was all about it. I was, you know, I was cheering it on. I actually assisted a lot of people in that early inception phase. I said, that's right. You guys can control your future very much what, uh, you know, Starbucks is doing. And they kind of use that as a model. The problem is the ethos that was within that basic kernel of an idea was grand. When certain executives took it over and they made it into a committee and they got members involved. It's just like anytime uh, an old line group of companies create a committee, it, it, it just falls apart. And it started to do that. And my advice to them was embrace and extend any new technologies that come your way, but make the back end platform be your key. Well, that wasn't sexy enough for the executives, not the people that were core to that company, but the executives that were putting it together on their end. They said, oh, no, we want the front side of this because that's where all the sexy technology is going to be. So when Apple Pay came knocking down the street, they uh, closed the door. I mean, there were some early conversations between the MCX uh, executives and Apple concerning uh, Apple Pay 1.0 pre-announcement, uh, pre pre-launch. Pre and they uh, pretty much knocked it down. That set the company up for failure. That's where we are today. And this, this just this last week, a founding MCX member, uh, the product is called Currency, the organization's MCX, Merchant Cash Ex uh, Merchant Currency Exchange. Um, they basically, this founding member, Rite Aid, Rite Aid, essentially said, oh, remember when we had Apple Pay on for a few weeks and then we turned it off? Well, we're sorry. Come back. We got Apple Pay turned back on. And the subtext to it is some kind of expiration started. The reality is this particular form of uh, MCX may be heading down a dead-end path. The test is going to... the light of the day? I, nobody knows that for sure. But, you know, a, a great uh, journalist, a uh, good friend, uh, Jason Del Rey over at Recode, wrote a story recently about that the launch date is going to be pushed off into some time in 2016. Oh, to be relevant, to, yeah, to be relevant, they should have launched in 2014. All right, that's the reality. Mm -hmm. to, to even have a chance, they needed to be holiday season 2015. Now they're moving into 2016. The world, as we know, is going to be dramatically different in 2016. And, you know, a lot of people in the startup world who really, you know, do get, get a lot of uh, this right are scratching their head and shaking their head saying they just don't get it. And, and in this way, they're absolutely right. You know, the company really didn't take these uh, ethos and, and extend it correctly. They went it and they just made it into an old line type of uh, initiative. And it's never going to it's never going to reach the maximum zenith it could have uh, it could have been. So what I what I'm anticipating is we're going to see companies that were founding members saving face they're going to continue to, you know, embrace elements of MCX and currency, but they're going to adopt Apple Pay, Samsung Pay at the same time. Uh, I'm anticipating Target and Walmart and a few others to um, aggressively move in this direction as uh, 2015 wears out and 2016 wears in. A lot of it is not really technology-based. It's all phil philosophically-based and, uh, and uh, psychologically-based. Well, a lot they of don't companies are like going to be either run underground or the new ones are going to pop up because in the next let's say three to four years the u.s uh, faster payment or real-time payments will come out right i mean everyone's yeah. hoping that they have the you know the, the group studies being done they have the committees done uh, just uh this past week the first draft on the iso 222 uh, for real-time wow. payments got published and again being headed by payments uk uh it's called rtpg real-time payments group um, yeah. I believe 18 countries, you know, are doing it, are a part of it, including Canada and including the U.S. for real-time payments. Yeah. And once yeah. that comes in, all your legacy payment ACH companies basically go bust. 
and all this new crop comes up, you know. What are your thoughts on this, that? This is, uh, you know, I, I'm anytime the anytime this, uh, you know, independent standards organization uh, that international standards organization that winds up putting these things together, two things happen. Um, either that standard ultimately gets adopted and integrated, you know, and everybody's happy with it, or some innovator takes the elements of that uh, standard and expands upon it. In the United States, especially, I have a feeling that we're going to see a combination of both take place. Uh, I have a feeling that we're going to see banks that otherwise have felt sort of sidelined in all of the fast-moving changes might jump aboard this, uh, some of the very large banks, and they might deeply integrate it within their platform. If they do that, it will become ubiquitously built into the back end. And that's the aspect of it. This is not so much a customer-facing scenario as a back-end communication system that's sort of invisible to the front side, invisible to the consumer and to most businesses. If it's integrated correctly, you just see things taking place at a much faster level. You know, and and speed is speed is something that everybody you know wants to see. That's the premise of the blockchain, and I think the, the you know the the dam that was being held up artificially to slow payments down, primarily in the U.S. I think we're going to see the big pieces taken out in 2016. Uh, we're not going to see all of it gone in 2016 because there's a lot of um, a lot of regulatory issues that have to be overcome. It's an election year. I have a feeling we're going to have to wait until a new Congress and Senate, mm-hmm. hopefully with a, a new mandate in the United States. I have a feeling, as usual, uh, Europe is going to move a little faster. I mean, the U.K. has been phenomenal in moving uh, money quickly. I mean, their banks move money faster than most of the banks in the world uh, from account to account. It's it's quite amazing. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, you know, the U.S. has something called clear exchange, but it never yeah. really took off the way yeah. everyone had envisioned. Why? I mean, you know, well, you, think- you, have, you have all the banks that are partners of it, and they said, you know, hey, rather than someone else coming, basically, long story short, cartel, you know, cartel comes together and says, it, you know, we want to yeah. have the first go at the this real-time payments. What do you think is going to happen you know, with that? Anytime something like that happens, there's so many uh, personal fiefdoms that need to be defended that you almost have a neutered organization. That's what's going on with MCX because essentially you have all, you know, old saying, uh, so many chiefs, not so many uh, Indians, right? And what that was basically is an analogy of that you have everybody that wants to make these uh, decisions and nobody wants to uh, actually follow uh, the the results of these decisions. And so what happens is you have... um, these committees become groundwork for the various banks or financial organizations to sort of lay out hidden agendas and sort of to do one-upsmanship upon their competitors. And even though they agree in principle that they'll all work together, it's sort of a crippled way of working together. They want to find a uniqueness that brands them. And a lot of people argue today that Visa nor MasterCard, especially Visa, uh, the whole interbank branding that they created back when it was being invented wouldn't have happened if the banks individually did it themselves. It was really sort of a third party uh, that that really had a lot of control and they made it into um, sort of a, for all intent and purposes, a committee of non a nonprofit group. And it worked very well. I don't know if in this epoch the same system would work, but I'm just not certain that just by virtue of putting all the right players in the room at the same time uh, is going to solve it because a lot of times they put their techs in the room uh, or their negotiators in the room. And when it comes time to finalizing, it's an executive who's probably not really sitting in the room, nor do they care to. And they gut out uh, the approvals. They take the meat of the change out. I'm not saying that's what's happening with this, but, you know, the ACH system hasn't changed for decades for a reason. It's because nobody wanted it to. The existing players didn't want it to change. Well, it's I really think the U.S. Is, rec- is recognizing that if they don't do that change, uh, despite all the hurdles uh, you know, that, that come their way, 
the U.S. banking and payment system would be left far behind, and uh, you know people have started to feel the uh, the effects of it. You want real time payments, you got to you know hop on a plane and get out of the U.S. for that to happen. Uh, that is so ridiculous in 2015 right now. I mean, you know, it makes they, no sense. I mean, you don't have real time payments. Period. Yeah. Very few yeah. developing countries don't have real time payments, but the rest of the world does. It's it's very very strange uh, scenario, and of course it's a it's you know nature. Uh, deplores uh, a vacuum. This is a vacuum that would be filled. So definitely going to see that happening. You know, and, and again, I think uh, this is sort of a retrospect looking back on where we were. I mean, we're a lot more closer to this particular scenario than we had ever been in the U.S. And uh, certainly with the initiative being uh, headed up by the U.K., I think there is enough uh, motivation to get things done sooner rather than later. You know, and uh, talking about real-time payments, we got in the United States, we have Square, who's essentially giving merchants their merchant processing money instantaneously on a debit card. And I, I got to say, it, it it's really has created a very confounding uh, amount of interest amongst uh, the various uh, VCs and financial analysts I talked to. And now a lot of the people in media, since Square is now a target to become a, an IPO, I'm actually talking to a lot of people in the press that are normally not covering startups, more covering the financial industry, and they're following me through Core and and uh, and Twitter recently, and they're asking me questions like, "Hold on, uh, is this a big deal? Why is it important?" You know, and it's a tough situation. You know, again, we talk about Square a lot, and they've changed dramatically. They're another thing that when we first started this podcast. Uh, Pretty much everybody thought Square would have IPO'd that year, and fortunately, Square, Square they, just reminds me of two words: prima donna. <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 that is a well-deserved designation. They actually coveted this sort of attitude of arrogance. Uh, I'm not saying that's permeating today, uh, but vestiges of it is still there. You know, they could be uh, diva, you know, but they're not. Yeah, exactly. But where we are with this is, you know. Data science, what we can do with data science is powerful. Once you get, you know, uh, enough big data, you can start acting upon it. Now, the thing about companies that are engineering driven, uh, they create some incredible products, but they also create incredible quagmires. A lot of things I do when I help companies is I try to say, just because you can do something with data science doesn't mean you should create a product from it. So here's the quagmire, and I'll just lay it out, and you can kind of see it as it stands. Within the startup world and the tech world, wow, money is now instantly in my debit card. That is cool. Yes, couldn't do it before because there's a lot of philosophical and data-driven problems that made it hard. It, there, was a, there was a bit of a fraud uh, pattern that you had to look at before you would give a merchant their money instantaneously. The slowdown of money in merchant processing was there for a reason. So Square comes in and use big data and big science to say, oh, we can pretty much predict when uh, somebody should get instant payments and uh, and we don't lose on it. Great. That's data science and it's doing well. Now, let's look at the other but, side but of this. But isn't Square fronting the money? I mean, the, the back-end processes are still batched. They still take one. Of course. To clear, of course. Right? This is all, yeah, it, it's, it's actually about 24 hours, really, okay. uh, for merchant processing. So when Square first came out, they were pretty much, you know, some merchants that were in small and risk categories might have waited 48 hours. In their marketing, they exaggerated. It would take five weeks, uh, five days to a week to get your money. That is, was so rare in the epoch, that 2011, when they were started. It was ridiculous. Maybe 10 years earlier that was true. But merchants were only waiting for their money when there was particular fraud metrics that were being met. And there was usually pretty darn good reasons. It was Visa's own fraud screening systems that were being used, and they were pretty accurate. So where are we today? Well, Square, up until this week, was funding you 9 a.m. East Coast time the next business day, okay? Mm -hmm. So now here's the problem. Thinking people come at and look at this not from a data perspective but from a philosophical perspective and from a business perspective because a lot of the um, analysts that are contacting me are, you know, business analysts. They look at cash flow. They look at businesses. And a lot of the reporters and writers, they're in a business sector. And the big question that everybody's asking me, which I'm sure 
I don't think Square thought about when they were putting this product together is uh, I'll put it in plain talk. What in the heck kind of company needs to get money four or five hours earlier and pay a 1% surcharge to do it? And I was challenged, you know, a lot of these people feel that I'm overly biased in Square's direction. And then people in the startup world think I'm overly biased against them. It's a bizarre world I live in because I love the company. I actually well, it support them. which day of the week it is, right, for you? Well, no, no, I love the company. I support them. It sounds like I go wishy-washy, but guess what I don't support? Really dumb decisions and choices. I call it maladvice. There's a lot of maladvice still going on in the company, and and, and I well, I think you've you know, talked that, about that enough in the previous. Uh, and episodes. people can figure it out. So, all right, here's the program. The program is I give you your money instantly on your debit card, Mister Business Owner, mm-hmm. but you're going to pay a one percent uh, surcharge for that. Now, it's very important to understand it's not a one percent discount rate where Square was two point seven five. Now you're paying three point seven five. In reality, you're paying a surcharge, a one percent. Now, that surcharge can be interpreted in a lot of ways. It can be con- interpreted as a cash advance, which in, a, in, in really a technical way it is. Some people can consider it a loan. People don't like using the word loan in the U.S. because it becomes a regulated product. Mm-hmm. So what I, I knew this because I know this whole cash advance sector. I've studied it for 30 years. I think that Square going down that road as one of their – you know, as one of their highlights during their IPO roadshow is probably not a good idea. We'll see what history will show. Isn't, it, uh, isn't the same as discounting? I mean, they're discounting their own invoice, their own receivable. Yes, but, but, but Faisal, here's the problem that's troubling. The Square product as it stands today is you get your money tomorrow morning. So if I close my cafe tonight at 8 o'clock and I, I wake up tomorrow at 9 a.m., I'm on the East Coast. My mm-hmm. money should be in the account. That's Square's promise, mm-hmm. right? And that's cool what they're doing. They're fronting the money, and that's not unique. About 99% of the companies in the world do that, but they're doing it. But the troubling part is how many hours is it from 8 o'clock at night to 9 o'clock the next morning, but and I'm you're, sure, paying, one, but I'm sure you're are, paying 1%? Well, well, you know, I'm sure they have data to substantiate that. I'm sure there are, there are freelancers or daily wage workers who would rather have money in their card at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. so that they can okay. buy dinner for their That's kids. That's troubling. Whatever. That's the troubling aspect. Because of remember, you- remember, Square does, the, the people who are accepting Square are very, very small merchants, most of them, most of them. Now, now you have, you have done the thinking that a lot of people, I think, inside Square weren't really thinking about. What you have said is that this is, in fact, somebody's payday. This is somebody's... Yeah, yeah daily wage, right? That's right. And, and the company is maybe in a position of what, let's say if, if you need your money at six o'clock at night and you can't wait to nine o'clock in the morning, we in, in the merchant processing world will call that a vulnerable merchant. Why is that merchant vulnerable? Because in the real world, business plans that are that tightly, the cash flow is that tight where you can't wait five or six or seven hours and you're willing to pay 1% what some people are calling a VIG on, on uh, getting your money, you've got to start saying what kind of merchant is that? Is that a sustainable business plan? Um, and there's what a lot of... What kind of are you in? <laughs> it, well, and it, there's a whole kind of thinking. So here's the quagmire and, and I'm not here to beat up on Square. I, I, I think they did this out of really good intention and I, I don't even want to talk about I mean, make how... Make it so, free, yeah, I understand that. You have a, That's a know, different you, thing. I, I mean, you have loyalty and retention and then some, right? That's a different thing. So what, what's going on is it's not you're paying a 3.75 rate to get your money faster. You're paying 2.75. Oh, but if you're in a tight spot and you can't wait six hours or nine hours, you're going to pay 1% to get your money. Now, That's 1% again, overnight, right? N- not even. And not even. I, so I'm calling it On a yearly basis, hours. that's what? 365%? What's the, what's the APR? <laughs> I, I got to say, when, when I got a phone call from a very well-known financial journalist, I was blown away. I mean, how he got my number, I don't even want to know. Mm. He calls me up, and he's a well-known financial writer. And he goes, Brian, I, I have one big question for you about this new square thing. He goes, you're the guy to ask. What's the APR on this program? And I go, I don't really think you want to think about it as a loan. 
He goes, yeah. but you're, he goes, I know you're fronting for the company. I go, please don't say I'm fronting for the company. Uh, I'm not. I go, I, I do want to take the benefit of the doubt. I go, do you understand that this is a data-driven product and that they're using? It didn't work. See, the problem is when I try really hard to take the position of, hold it, this is great data science. Hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't bode well. And you identified it organically. We didn't have a pre-conversation about this. No, you said, Brian, don't you, don't you know that these merchants are needing to pay for food the next, you know, for their I mean, family. You know, you know I, I think about a typical example, a, a woman doing haircutting in her you know, garage or basement, and she has two assistants, and the clientele is paying by credit card. And at the end of the day, at 5 p.m., the assistants have worked, you know, six hours or what have you, they need to get paid. If she can get the money in her debit card, she can perhaps go to an ATM and withdraw it or, you know, and send it to them. That's the kind of scenarios that come to my mind. And I'm sure exactly. Square must have substantiated this thing. And I'm sure they even asked the question that you have, you know, what sort of a business is this? And, and then they look at it and they say, well, you know, well, this is a daily wage business. She, this is why she yeah. the money tonight and not tomorrow. I know, but here's the problem from from a regulatory standpoint and from a philosophical standpoint and just from the optics of it, you're looking at it from the outside. You know, if your best friend came up to you and said, hey, I'm getting I'm getting my money in my pocket and I'm paying this APR of three digits. What would you say to him? Obviously not. You know, of course. I'd say you've got to be silly and stupid just to get a thousand bucks in your bank account tomorrow. Okay. Why do you have to pay ten percent today? So, so now you've already lost two point seven nine percent in the transaction. So now there's a branching tree of decisioning, right? You have to ask the person what's going on with your business model, what's going on with your uh, your personal life, what's going on with but, maybe but your Ryan, math. They're not financially tech savvy, right? They're not financially savvy. They don't they don't they don't get it that it's three digits. They just know that's one percent. Okay, for every thousand dollars, it's just ten. It's ten bucks, and ten <laughs> bucks between now and tomorrow morning. I need it now. You know, so now now you're an engineer sitting at a company that wants to change the world and create amazing technology products. And you are on your way home. You're passing by these yellow blinking signs that uh, are, are, uh, say, get your paycheck now. And these people are charging 75 percent interest or 85 percent interest or 65 percent interest. Mm -hmm. We had a gentleman on our show that had an incredible program that was charging more like 39 percent interest. You know, you start saying to yourself, is that the direction a glamorous, incredibly brilliant startup company wants to go in? So I'll just cap it off there. I'm just saying that, you know, I call this maladvice. I think just because I guess the lesson here is not square. Uh, they're going to do well either way. Hmm. The maladvice is when you have a board of directors, when you have an executive team and you have an engineering team that says, hey, boss look at what we can do with our data science. Let's go and do it. You need to take a really big leap backwards. You use something I call empirical paraxis. And you look at it and say, what are we really doing with this product? What are we really going to accomplish? And is it owning up to who we want to be as a company into the future? Is it really who we want to be uh, want to be known as? You know, And that's the question. So maybe... Maybe a two or three years from now, we look back in a show, we look at some of these financial products that not just Square, other companies are putting out. And we might say, remember when these companies were doing that? Because, you know, I think we're at that point, specifically in payments, where data science is going to allow us to do, to th- do things that we weren't able to do before. But there's reasons why we shouldn't have done them before, mm. not just because uh, mm. the big data wasn't there. Mm. And maybe the IPO will show us what the public markets are reading. But, you know, at the, well, what the I can say. out on that, right? I, I think yeah, what I can say, say at this point, financial journalists are kind of nonplussed by all this or kind of like, what do we, how do we read this? So it, it, it's going to be interesting. How, how do you see? How no, do you I, I, see? Before we, we got a, we got a couple of minutes left, but I just want to ask you about one yeah. thing: Samsung, Samsung Pay. You know, Samsung yeah. Pay is lining up card schemes for their launch. They're launching in South Korea, which obviously is their home territory. Absolutely, uh, and they're doing it this month, in the month of August. Uh, September, they launch US. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think they'll get everyone on board? You know, uh, some your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think and they, Samsung. And they're doing it before uh, Android Pay. 
Yeah, yeah, and which was pretty much planned. You know, and I think uh, the fractal, uh, the the fractionization of Android uh, Pay and Samsung Pay, the whole team Android response to Apple Pay, is probably not doing them any service. I think uh, Samsung kind of going off on their own is ultimately hurting the entire group. I'm predicting at some point both parties will get together and 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 make some sort of amends to try to make uh, these things work uh, on a more uh, internal basis within an Android device. So where are we in the U.S.? Well, everybody's piggybacking on each other. Mm-hmm. I think what is going on with what Apple... See, back in 2011, 2010, when I was talking about uh, NFC becoming a, a uh, internet for payments, for retail payments in the United States, I anticipated that Apple would absolutely need their competitors to adopt NFC to be fully realized where they want to take this. And the plan is is taking off exactly as it was predicted. Basically, NFC was a captive of carriers. And the carriers wanted to take a big percentage of the transaction by virtue of the fact that they were in the middle of that cell phone. And most of the world was looking at NFC through the eyes and the and the sunglasses of carriers, and that's what made it so viciously uh, indefensible in the United States. Because basically, if you talked NFC to startup founders, you'd say, "Oh, you're pro carrier, and that's not disruptive." And it's like, no, it's a protocol, it's a standard, it's a transport mechanism, and it will be dominated by Apple, mm. and it will bring other people aboard. So that's where Samsung is going on one element of their system. So we talk about well. What about all of those payment card terminals that are not yet NFC? Well, that's a window that's closing in the United States. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting. I think that there's a training issue. We've covered this uh, many times that if the uh, owner and most importantly, the person operating the cash register at that moment doesn't understand that this individual who may walk behind the counter because the credit card machine is not necessarily within uh, customer reaching distance and yeah, holds up. Bring it up front. But I think Apple Pay has done that already, hasn't it? Apple Pay has done that through an NFC device that's being brought up, but there's a training involved. When you get an NFC device, there's a training. Oh, by the way, we have NFC and there's going to be people holding their phone, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Operator yeah, but, but of the cash Let's be realistic. The duality of it is that you know, you'll have Apple Pay and Samsung Pay slash Android Pay slash MCX all at, is, you know, at the same location. And, you know, Maybe Starbucks host. Pay too and, yeah, and Facebook yeah, Pay. There you go. And you know, you, there'll be a host of you know, little terminals and you just bring your phone and you know, hope one of them goes beep. Yep. Actually, what will what, happen is it's going to be standardized. All right. So uh, Android Pay, Sam, most of Samsung Pay with the NFC, and Apple Pay are using standard NFC terminals. So you only need yeah, one. PMICO, right? So they're yeah. All- well, yeah. They, they basically NFC existed before EMVCO really adopted it. It, it. it was its own standard, and they st- slowly started to merge it. And the standard we have today on smartphones is using uh, a standard that EM, EMVCO has standardized uh, around. But prior to that. It was his own standard for chip cards. And uh, they, they, in the United States, uh, there was Blink uh, in the U.S., uh, Chase, uh, Chase's first foray into this. And they actually did fairly well in their test markets. So here we are today. Merchants that are upgrading by virtue of a uh, rule change within Visa MasterCard by October uh, of this year, most of the mainline merchants, uh, let's call them the first tier, three tiers of uh, the five tiers of merchants, have already updated their terminals. Um, the problem with EMV cards in the U.S. is that it's not chip and PIN, it's chip and signature. The the behavioral changes, and I talked about this a lot in the past shows, is that the card must stay in the machine until the transaction is completed, and the notification of a completed transaction is not very clear as it stands with anybody's device. Uh, we're used to swiping cards in the U.S., and that's a one-time event. You swipe yeah, the card, you put it in the interesting thing because in Europe what they do is uh, the card remains in the machine until yeah. the first receipt comes out. And they get not here. Sign, uh, you know, the, uh, not the receipt comes out, and they bring you the pin pad, and you know, say punch it in, and so forth, and so forth. See, the whole behavior is different. I call it the EMV user experience fail, and and that's actually going to that's a, we could do a whole show on that, boring as heck, but uh, it's it's going to be a major problem. 
but on the other side of it is people using smartphones to pay are going to bypass the EMV user experience fail and wind up having a very fast transaction. If you've done an Apple Pay transaction, it's very addictive. Even uh, Samsung and Android Pay is very addictive. Uh, the MBT or the uh, technology within uh, Samsung Pay, which is using the old magnetic card reader, that particular system is a little bit more convoluted. It's a little bit more confusing for the operator. And I don't know what the success of that's going to be. All I can tell you is you don't want to go to, uh, you know, um, Country Western Bar and check out at 1 a.m. and uh, tell Haas that you're going to pay with your cell phone, <laughs> uh, your $300 bar, bar tab, because he ain't going to believe that you really paid for it. Yeah. He's going to think you're some hacker that got into his machine because he looks at you and goes, hey, buddy, I don't, I, you know, I like your, I, I like your cell phone, but where's your card? You know, our, our machine take, takes cards. We don't have that newfangled thing. Mm. Well, but look, it's new technology. I don't care if it's new technology. I want your card. See, the problem that most people in the tech world, and we're biased, you're in a tech world, different part of the, uh, different part of the globe, but we're biased. We see, see things through that uh, lens. But if you're a merchant and somebody comes up to your terminal and nobody's ever been able to hold a phone up to it and all of a sudden somebody holds a phone up to it, you're going to question that transaction, probably the first 300 of them maybe, or maybe you never trust it. And you're going to say, hold on, buddy, uh, you know, that never, this is acting in a way I've never seen before. Now, the problem is the banks have no incentive to, to educate the merchant because they don't have any stake in this, mm. even though they are getting transactions. Samsung doesn't have the budget or the desire or tenacity to go out and train, you know, random merchants in the U.S. on how this is going to operate. So the whole thing is going to be a bit of a problem at the same time that the EMV problem is going to start showing up. And I, I've been doing, well, I have three studies ongoing right now about EMV. All I can tell you is when you get a senior citizen doing an EMV, EMV transaction, it is a sight to see. I love, they're cute, they're amazing, but if you need to get through that line quick, they slip, slip the card in, and they pull it out real quick. And then the operator goes, can you do it again? They slip it in, they pull it out quick. Can you do it again? You know, and everybody, it's a comedy of errors. The operator, checkout person, doesn't know that EMV card must stay in. Uh, the senior citizen is there fumbling it. They don't know that the gold uh, leads need to be up and to the right. Or maybe is it up to the left? Or is it straight down? Or if you look at Square's device, hold it. Is it where is the card slot? You know, Overly simple or overly complex doesn't solve the problem. And I try to tell these companies this, but, you know, nobody's listening. Anyway, at the end of the day, you have a slowdown in that line. Now, multiply that at Walmart or Target on a busy Saturday when there's six average people in the line and you got everybody doing that. Um, I'm telling you right now, it is a major problem. Now you put Samsung Pay and you're saying, well, hold it. That didn't show up like an NFC transaction because mm. there's a different thing that shows up on the um, on the POS device at the larger merchants, especially. And now you have that to deal with. So the the primary purpose of the NFC system is security, of course, but also speed. And so I think what's going to rule the day is the NFC portion of Android Pay, the NFC version of Samsung Pay, and of course Apple Pay. Mm. And I think. Um, Will it be a success in the U.S.? Yeah. If you have a Samsung phone and your NFC is on and Jamba Juice or Panera or Starbucks is uh, wanting you to pay and you could just hold your phone up and walk away using NFC, why wouldn't you? You know, well, it's not because you don't have your wallet because no. your wallet, you probably have your wallet. This dream that people are jogging without their wallets is just a fantasy of startup founders. It doesn't exist in a real world because every... Everybody's come up with a new payment system and says, oh, when I'm jogging without my wallet, I go, let me follow you for four or five weeks and let me see how often you jog, number one, and number two, how often you jog without your wallet. It doesn't happen. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're probably going to jog with your ID and you're probably going to jog with your driver's license. And again, this is a, 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 a dividing line between gender um, and again, not to bias towards women, but most women do not leave the home without a purse. And uh, some men, but, you know, mostly women. And you're not going to eliminate the purse. So the whole dream of doing NFC or any type of wallet just to eliminate a card is, is the wrong premise. Well, so the anyway. Curtain, the curtain gets lifted on the 28th of September. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. 
It's going to be fun because I think it's going to give more reason for people to want to use their cell phone for payments. It's going to acclimate and it's going to be interesting. But I think in your part of the world and the rest of the world, the magnetic um, uh, part, the MBT part of Samsung Pay, that's going to be interesting. I want to see where parts of the developed and newly developed world and even undeveloped are going to be utilizing that technology because you do have some of these legacy terminals that yes. may, in fact, have magnetic strip, but not NFC, but EM, uh, EMV. And I'd like to see what happens there. I certainly think it's going to do fairly well in Korea, but it's interesting. Korea has got a lot of NFC terminals, a lot more than uh, per capita than most people think. They're top 12, I think, in mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, thank you for your perspective. Folks, this is all the time we have this week. Brian, Mike, and myself will be back next week. Till then, have a good day. Thank you, Faisal. Take care. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.